0: This is the Positive Psychology Podcast, episode 113. Welcome to the Positive Psychology Podcast, bringing your earbuds the science of the good life. And now your host, Kristen Trumpy. Hello, hello. Well, originally I wanted to do this for episode 69, but back then I was too prude, so I chickened out. Like past me, positive psychology has a bit of a prudeness problem. Like my schoolmate Joy Joe pointed out, it is bizarre that sex is so rarely talked about in positive psychology. Once he left, I don't think the topic was ever mentioned again. While I don't know all the dissertations done by masters of uh, positive psychology students around the world, I only have knowledge of one, where sex was tackled from a positive psychology perspective. Now, there is a notable exception, and that's Scott Barry Kaufman from the Psychology Podcast. Um, If you haven't checked it out, check it out. It's wonderful. And he has done a couple of sex episodes, which are worth listening to. Generally, with the exception of actual sexologists, the academic world and sex education is absolutely obsessed with the dark and unwanted consequences of sex and disproportionately looks at male sexuality. Here is what I'm hoping to do in this episode. Question lots of ideas about uh, sexuality, reflect on more helpful ways to think about them, and introduce a few concepts that look at sex from a more positive lens. So, as with almost everything, let's start with reflecting your own sexuality. Um, Sexuality is a big part of our identity. This goes way beyond sexual orientation, although that is very important, and we'll talk about that a bit later in the episode. Um, Aspects such as desirability, sexual performance, um, whether we're more vanilla or kinky, all contribute to how we see ourselves and how others see us the opportunity to engage with lesser explored areas of the selves of ourselves is actually what you know interesting sex can be about do we prefer to actively explore or are we perhaps afraid of certain aspects which we might fear could be problematic um Sex can be a path to relating to others, again, this we will be talking about later a bit more. And, um, as with most things, it's shaped by the past. Past experiences often shape both you and your your partner's experience. Like with everything in life, it's important to learn from the past, develop uh, coping mechanisms that help us handle the things we feel raw about, and leave sufficient brain space for the present to actually appreciate what is happening. Shame and acceptance are huge topics and I suggest you check out episode 63 if shame and acceptance keep you from exploring your sexuality. Here it's important to know that all the things that contribute to a positive sexual environment are also applicable to ourselves and can help us with a great deal with shame. If you carry around religious shame that messes with your sexuality And you want a new perspective, I suggest looking into writers such as Nadia Boltz-Weber or Rachel Held-Evans. Those are Christian writers. I'm not familiar with uh, writers who tackle sexuality from other faiths, but I don't want to exclude them. I'm just not aware of them. Pathologizing sexual practices is also a big part when we want to interrogate ourselves in return. when it comes to sex so we're often told that people who have tastes that go beyond well, you know standard baby making are somehow broken or damaged uh this is very common especially when it comes to kink and just because frayed choice backed everything to childhood and repressed feelings doesn't know everything it doesn't mean that everything is always dark and true and sad Um, It can, of course, be true that certain experiences make us favor things over others, but even if a preference has some kind of dark or sad origin, it does not mean that it won't be fun and rewarding to explore and express it sexually. Sometimes we overthink and over-dramatize our sexual preferences. Life is full of preferences that don't always have a rational explanation. To me, I think of my sexual preferences similarly to my food preferences. Who the hell cares why I like cheddar better than Emmental cheese? What counts is that I make sure I get more cheddar than Emmental in my mouth. I invite you to adopt that rather uncomplicated approach to your sexual preferences. What turns you on? Uh, This is a question for yourself. Please, you don't have to write me this unless you really truly want to. Um, What would you like to try out in real life? Under which circumstances would you feel safe enough to do that? Under which circumstances would you feel confident enough to try something? What are you happy to just keep as a fantasy? Would you be willing to share the fantasy or is it just for you? And what do you feel you deserve? Uh, in conversations I encounter both issues of worthiness but also entitlement. Some people seem to think that their kings are queens and that their partners should guess and fulfill all their desires. And it is great if you feel you deserve fulfillment as long as you communicate with your partner and also make sure that you are just as informed and willing to satisfy them. Others feel timid and for various reasons take whatever form of sex they can get, even if it's not pleasurable for them. If you belong to this latter group, I would like to invite you to consider the idea that while chemistry obviously plays a big role... There are also aspects of sex that work more like skills, and skills can be learned and improved upon. This includes, but is not limited to, expressing love, affection, and desire in daily life outside of the bedroom. Being able to clearly communicate if something is good or bad. That's very important, because keeping up with sex, or what we could call sexual literacy, um, this could include techniques, but also things that excite and charge us and our partner erotically. What taboos exist for you? Which of these taboos have you taken over without questioning them? Which of these taboos come from previous experiences? And was that experience something that could have turned out differently with another partner? Where are the consequences for your partner and possibly your children if you're uncomfortable addressing these taboos? What are hard lines that you don't wish to cross? Do you or your partner have suffered from some kind of sexual trauma? And if so, what can be done to heal and deal with it? Um, Relating to others, sex is obviously a powerful way to relate to others. Here are a few factors that come into play. Orientation. Um, I think everybody knows what straight is. I assume people know what gay is. Um, But what about pansexuality? Do you know that one? Well, Bisexuality is a slightly outdated term for someone who is attracted to both men and women, and this term was updated to pansexual in order to include everyone who might not identify as a man or a woman. There are folks who are asexual, and asexuality is the lack of sexual attraction to others, or low or absent interest in, our, in desire for sexual activity. It's not the same as celibacy or abstaining from sex voluntarily. People who are celibate might still have strong sexual urges, and in asexuality, that is not the case. It's also been seen as more enduring. Um, There are many different ways that asexuality can be lived. Um, People abstain from sex altogether or engage sometimes to achieve some other goal, such as pleasing a partner or having children. Um, someone who's asexual may might have no romantic relationships or be romantically attracted to people, um, but not sexually. This means that intimacy, closeness, and relationships are valued, but just not the sexual component. What is difficult about this asexuality is that all other orientations might have a hard time understanding and relating to it. Um, things like sex positivity might make asexual people feel excluded. And just for the record, it's not my intention to exclude anyone, but sometimes there are no other terms yet, um, and we haven't as a society figured out how to talk about something in a way that truly includes everyone. Unfortunately, the absence of sex positivity does not make life good for asexual folks, so I still use um, sex positivity and all terms associated with it. Then there's um, folks, it's not a legal orientation, but for some people argue that polyamory um, is what their orientation is. Um, This is also a group of folks who might face a lot of judgment from other people. And while I'm personally both too lazy and probably too jealous to make polyamory work, I have to say that I have a great deal of curiosity in terms of how we as a society evolve with establishing different ways of being together. You know, I think right now it's still kind of pretty strict, you know, um, you, you're married or you're not, they're like five, six different arrangements and that's it. And I would like to see people have the freedom to do whatever they want, as long as there are no, as there's no abuse. Um, and there it's all full of consent. And I hope that we will get to a place where we accept all kinds of love without question in the future. And, But also that the boundaries will transcend and new ways of being romantically involved might evolve. You know, like, I think we can do better. Um, There are many nuances to love that are not being expressed with the way that society works right now. And, yeah, I'm just curious to see what happens in the future. Consent is a huge part of sexuality and of communication, but I wanted it to be its own little section. And that's because it's so important and talked about. Now there's an awesome video, Uh, feel free to Google it. It exists with an American accent, or even better if you ask me with a British accent, and it's called, Consent is like tea," And they explain why you could substitute tea for sex to understand when sex is appropriate and when it's not. few examples include, you don't serve tea to someone who doesn't want tea. You don't give tea to a person who says, do you want tea? Uh, um, uh, uh, Okay. You don't give tea to sleeping or unconscious people. You don't force people to drink tea who wanted tea last week, but not today. And for those of you who are still a bit confused, there is this thing called the rock test. Now, this only works if you're not actually attracted to the rock. Before doing something to another person you are not sure is welcome, consider how you would feel if the actor Dwayne Johnson, aka The Rock, aka The Rock, would do the same to you. If you don't want him to do it to you, you should probably ask for permission to proceed. Communication. Uh, Before you talk to anybody about sexuality, make clarity a priority. If you don't know what you like, you won't be able to communicate it to someone else. If you know what you like, but you're too ashamed to communicate it, things will also be a bit rough. Becoming more comfortable communicating your sexual needs and desires might be something that brings you significantly closer to your partner. It is an act of vulnerability and relies on the other person having a certain maturity. Sex is a form of communication. If one partner needs more sex than the other, it can be hard to understand why that matters, especially if you're the person who has a lower drive. But think of it as a form of communication. And imagine if talking is important to you. Imagine if your partner just stopped talking to you. Um, Boycotting intercourse might have the same effect on your partner. Feedback. This seems like a good time to dig out those feedback rules you might have encountered in some boring workshop in the office. Um, In the context of sex, feedback does not have to be in written or form or happen in a meeting room, although that would be hilarious. (laughs) And I'm all for it, especially if everybody would suit up for the conversation. It's probably better to have some fixed time to connect regularly and talk about the relationship overall than one-off sex feed, then a one-off sex feedback session. So here are a few rules, feedback rules. Um, Let's see if you remember them. Be specific. Uh, You are great in bed is wonderful to hear, but not great for learning. I like to be touched here, but that not there is more helpful. Give feedback after small victories. Sounds and body language can also be feedback. Just make sure that the other person has noted it. Don't do the often advised feedback sandwich where you start and finish with something good and all the shit goes in the middle because nobody's listening to the good feedback if they feel that there's um, shit coming from them, okay? Comment on the behavior, activity, or what was said and not on the person. Example, I don't like a tongue in my ear. Don't say, I hate it when you stick your tongue in my ear. That puts the person in the line of fire, so to speak. Own the feedback. I love when you do this, be reasonably timely. Regular feedback rules say you should give immediate feedback. With the topic of sex, that might not always be the best idea. However, it has to be timely enough so your partner can remember what happened. I once heard that queer folks have better sex because they have to naturally talk about what goes where and when, whereas with straight people this is pretty self-evident. So, yeah it's about so much more than sex. I find that we are quick to come up with reasons of why sex doesn't work out. Um, things include I'm stressed or libido uh, libido decreases when a couple has been together for a while. And these these are in similar explanations might be true or partially true, but if we rush to our explanations, we might miss the big picture of what was going on. Um, there is a possibility that there has a, a greater breakdown in communication has happened in the relationship altogether or that there's generally a loss of intimacy outside of the bedroom that there is lack of appreciation and gratitude and these things are are important it's not just always oh oh i can't get erect therefore i need a pill it's it often does have some kind of psychological underpinning but not always okay that's important Let's talk about the concept of love languages, and love languages would deserve their own episode, but here's what you need to know. There are five love languages, and they include spending quality time with a loved one, uh, giving gifts, physical touch, acts of service, where you do stuff such as, you know, maybe cleaning the dishwasher or some uh, clearing the dishwasher or something like that, and words or affirmation, where you say nice things like, I love you. It's not a scientifically backed up theory as far as I can tell, but the, the ideas make a lot of sense based on findings in related topics such as high-quality relationships and positive emotions. So here's the idea. Basically, everybody has a love language. And if our partner understands and speaks this love languages, we feel loved well. Often, unfortunately, the partner might have a completely other love language. Say, yours is getting gifts. That's how you feel loved when somebody gives you gifts frequently and gives you, or gives you meaningful gifts. For your partner, maybe physical touch is a love language, So my, tar, tar, blah, so your partner might touch you a lot, but you don't register that as a signal of their love because you're waiting for a gift. And I would expect that understanding and then acting in accordance with your partner's love language will probably improve your sex life. Um, Especially if both of you do it, obviously. Sex positivity. Defining sex positivity. So um, (laughs) you don't need to become a sexual cheerleader who provides vibrators, a sex swing, and hydration to all those around you to be sex positive. It simply means that as long as consent has been established and protective measures have been taken, anything that does not harm someone is fair game. Sex positivity places openness and curiosity above judgment and shame. It recognizes that sex can be a wonderful force for good, and sex positivity rejects the idea that needs which are not harmful to others are perverted, no matter how unusual they are. It requires a certain humility to understand that your opinions should not shape the sex lives of the people around you unless they specifically ask for your input. You can be very conservative with your own preferences, but still be sex positive, right? You can be like, well, personally, I prefer um, a handful of things done well, but um, mazel tov to anybody who tries more adventurous things. So that's a possibility. Don't think that other labels that you have prevent you from being sex positive. They don't. Sex positivity ensures that honest conversations can take place, and sex-positive people can laugh about sex and situations, but not at the price of ridiculing people um, for what they enjoy or who they are attracted to. Creating a sex-positive environment. um, The environment is constantly being shaped whether you're aware of it or not. For example, when you watch TV with someone, they can see what disgusts you, what makes you smile, and all that. The way we talk about ourselves and others is full of clues about what we think is normal and what isn't. How we react to current events carries a lot of information as well. And the majority of the shaking, the shaping of the environment takes place outside of sexual contexts, context, and therefore you can't just sit your partner or your kid down for once and then think it's over. It's not, this is an ongoing process. Judgment is an important thing that we need to talk about. Um, Our brain constantly makes evaluations, but learning to control our own judginess is crucial if we want to have the kind of conversations that don't only enable a healthy sex life, but give room for closeness. Sometimes we can't keep our brain from making judgments, but we can prolong or not express those judgments at all. If we absolutely have to make judgments, we can make them based on what we consider constructive or less constructive elements to be. We don't need to share our judgments with others if we absolutely can't help making them. Remember that your facial expressions and your body language communicate your opinions to others. And if you look shocked or disgusted by what the other person told you, they will probably not confide in you anymore. People pick up on those things. Maybe you recognize yourselves in these lines and you think, whoa, how can I be less judgy? And one way is to expose yourself to TV programs and stories and books with these themes or main characters who are more open. If you net, if you check out the Netflix shows such as You, Me, Her, Bonding, or Sex Education, that might be a good way to start because the thing here is it's, it's the people, some of them are quite likable, and that helps us to kind of hold back on the judginess. Remember, if you feel yourself being judgmental, you don't have to be ashamed. But just observe that the judgment is there, and then try to let it go to the best of your ability. Vulnerability is a big part of creating a sex-positive environment. We have to be mindful of who we are vulnerable with. Not everybody deserves it, frankly. We are not trustworthy. No positive environment can exist. And when we don't know how to respond, we can choose to respond non-verbally or honestly say that we don't know um, what the solution would be to something, but we're still here for the other person. You have no responsibility to solve the other person's issue. Um, If you think you do, you will probably be too busy worrying and not free enough to truly listen and be there for the other person. Be mindful of what you share. Um, Some things we're just not ready to share yet. You know, there's, there's a fine line between being brave and getting into the habit of vol- being vulnerable and oversharing and harming ourselves. And I think the only way to figure it out is to, to try to listen to our intu- intuition. And then, you know, still, if your intuition tells you to never be vulnerable, then maybe you can't listen to your intuition all the time. But in- if your intuition is like, well, here it's okay, but here it's not, then you can go with it more. Never pry. Whatever people share is a gift. It's not up to you to demand more. Sometimes people might lie or leave info out, and it's not your job to confront them about it. You are not a criminal investigator. They are obviously struggling with that part, and maybe when they've made sense of it or something changes, maybe they confide at a later time, and maybe they won't. Education. Well, sometimes people might confront you with sexual issues you know nothing about. Um, And educating yourself is vital, especially if the other person expects advice from you. Let's say if it's maybe your child or someone you're otherwise responsible to uh, for. Um, Ensure that your education is not one-sided. So what is one-sided education? Well, or information? Well, if it talks only about the risks, but no pleasure or vice versa. Um, If it's written by people who condemn or don't like something, that's probably also pretty one-sided. And it's important that you learn to separate facts from beliefs. So it's a fact that if you have a lot of sex, pregnancy is more likely to happen. However, it's an opinion that having lots of sex damages people. Pleasure, curiosity, and adventure. While the risks, frustrations, and dark sides of sexuality are important, we should not forget about the fun part. A few years ago, I listened to an audiobook by the philosopher Alain de Botton, and he said something to the effect of, in life, curiosity is a good thing. Sharing is a good thing. Adventure is a good thing. Why is sex different? Why can't we be curious, adventurous, and have sex with others? Now, to be fair, this is not a quote. This is not exactly what he says, but it's the gist of what he said. And this is the Positive Psychology Podcast, so let's look at how certain concepts from positive psychology can enhance sexual pleasure and fulfillment. Let's start with mindfulness. Cultivating awareness through meditation and other practices can help us to enhance several capabilities, which come in handy when it comes to sex. Overall, awareness can help us to detect more pleasurable and less pleasurable aspects of sexual encounters. We can communicate things to others if we don't pick up on them ourselves, right? So this is the difference between a fuzzy overall discontent and being able to exactly pin down what we enjoy and what we don't. If we are too distracted by our thoughts or thoughts of the past or the future or how our bodies look, uh, we won't be sensitive enough to more nuanced touch and we lose out a lot. Character strengths is another wonderful way to illuminate sexuality. And how do your character strengths express themselves in a sexual context? I want you to think about it. Here are some examples. Let's look at the broad VIA categories. (laughs) Let's look at the broad VIA categories for some inspiration. Wisdom and knowledge. Uh, Curiosity can, can be a driver to explore the world of sex. Love of learning can be used to immerse ourselves more deeply once we've found something that fascinates us. If that sounds nerdy to you, do not underestimate the nerds. They have some of the kinkiest parties you can possibly imagine, or so I've been told. Creativity can be employed to come up with new stuff you and your partner might enjoy, or work around limitations that you have or your partner has, either physical or things like psychological boundaries. Judgment can be helpful in negotiating what is too much or what is too little of something, and perspective can be used to deal with sexual dissatisfaction or coping with something that happened that we're not okay with. The courage strengths can be used to implement some physically or psychologically risky but potentially rewarding moves, to keep at it when things are tough, or taking longer than planned, and also to ensure honest sexual communication. The humanity strengths of love, kindness, and social intelligence come in very handy in sexual communication, both in the middle and after sexual interactions. Folks with temperance strengths sometimes feel that their strengths are boring, but I am sure that we can all agree that if you have a partner who is prudent, self-regulating, humble, and forgiving, that can bring a lot of value Um Simply by protecting us, the partner, you know, for me, I mean, it's kind of nice to know that your pee will not burn because that other person is just very diligent. Transcendence, strengths of appreciation of beauty, gratitude, hope, humor, and spirituality can make sex both more superficial and more deep. My appreciation of the male form has led me to waste precious hours of my life because it has sucked me into watching TV shows I would have never watched if it weren't for a certain broad-chested gentleman. Humor can lead folks to sleep with shitty but funny humans, or it can take the tension out of situations which could otherwise be very dispiriting or sad. Things like gratitude and appreciation can make a relationship truly sustainable beyond the point when the complete hormonal takeover has tapered off. And last but not least, for those who are spiritually minded, sex can become one of the most powerful ways of expressing and sharing their spirituality. As you can see, good old positive psychology concepts can help us think differently and fruitfully about topics we might not necessarily associate with positive psychology. And that's frankly something that makes it so incredibly interesting to me All of these years later. We already touched on a few questions about pleasure, curiosity, and adventure in sex, so how can you make time and devote energy to these more playful and exciting aspects of sex? Doing so includes leaving space for failure and potential embarrassment. The safer your relationship is, even if it's just with yourself, the smaller the price is to explore new things. The big wide world of sex. Well, I am amazed at the sheer breadth of ideas and things that people consider to be sexual. Some people consider it a turn-on to be treated as furniture, while others ask professionals not to only sexually, but financially dominate them. What I find interesting, you know, if we just look at things and are like, is this for me, yes or no, it's a very limited way of learning. And that is true for other things, um when it comes, and not just sex, you know, for example, when I was studying for my master's, um, and also my undergrad, I always wondered, even if a concept didn't necessarily make sense to me, or I felt I didn't connect with it, I always try to think about, well, who is this for? Who would find value in these ideas? And I think when it comes to exploring the world of sex that is helpful you know you might know that you're never going to be turned on by being treated like a table but who knows maybe some of these things that a part of you especially if a part of you finds something intriguing well why don't you just kind of go in with an open mind and see what that entails because it might lead to something enriching even if the main act so to speak is not up your alley. Let's briefly look at two related but still different things. One is bondage. Uh, under the surface of bondage, trust is truly at the core. Experiencing that deep form of trust might be quite rare outside of those extreme situations. Think about it for a minute. Um, I don't trust everyone to tie me up. You know, because what if they leave you? What if they do something to you that you don't want them to do, right? So so even if you think something is... Um, unbearably kinky and absolutely not your root, well, there are some elements underlying it which can be interesting. And in order for people to be both physically and psychologically safe enough to play around with bondage, they have to be radically open about boundaries where they're ready to be pushed and what is absolutely off limits. And boundaries, if you think about it, they're super important for every single human being inside and outside of the bedroom. And this is precisely what I mean. I don't want to pretend that I'm an expert on bondage, because I truly am not. But I do believe that the kinds of conversations that people have in these contexts can inform all of us when it comes to other things. Domination and subservience. This comes in all kinds of shades, but the central theme, to me at least, seems to be acting out some kind of power dynamics. In society, and in our own lives, many of us probably have certain power dynamics already and roles in place. We might be used to calling the shots in our work life or at home, or we might be used to being more of a follower. And regardless of what happens in our daily life, there is a chance that we suppress certain feelings that are not socially appropriate. Gender might play a role in this. Um, Overall, women are more punished for being perceived as aggressive, and men are not allowed to be soft or not in charge. It can be potentially very liberating to experience different power dynamics, and I think that's what the draw is of this whole domination and subservience thing. The cliché is, of course, the high-powered CEO who loves to be dominated because it frees her mind to not be making all the decisions. Here it's important to be open when we start exploring. It might not be as simple as saying, I'm a top or a bottom. And even if you have no intention of ever getting into bondage, domination, or kinky games, it might be enlightening to ask yourself and potentially explore, with or without a partner, these kind of questions. Now let's talk about sex and society. Everything up until now has been, pretty it's been much about you or you and your partner, but let's broaden the horizon a bit. Let's talk about porn. Uh, Separating what is problematic from what is not. Now, obviously, based on your value system, you and I might wildly disagree on what is problematic and what is not. And by offering my own views, I wanna make you think about these things and clarify your own thoughts. If you think, all porn is bad, no matter what, please consider the price you and your loved ones pay if you close the door to all discussion around this topic. Now, I have to be very clear, I have no interest in converting anyone to my perspective. Um, I will probably never meet the majority of you, so for me, it truly doesn't really matter that much uh, what you do in your bedroom or what you consider to be okay porn or not. What I will say, though, is that we and the people around us pay a high price for taking certain ideas for granted without questioning them. Now, in porn, as with everything else, there are explicit messages and explicit messages are things that are said, the, and, and the effect of these messages varies widely. Some things that are said during porn, like, come to me, daddy, might be a huge turn on for someone while they might turn off or even traumatize someone else. And is it, it is important that we, if we engage with porn, to ensure that the messages that are there don't mess with our heads in the long term. Examples of how they could mess up is, for example, getting hung up on certain bodily features or practices which we might think, which we might indeed find disgusting, but think are somehow expected of us, especially if you're maybe a younger person listening to this. Then there are implicit messages, and they're a bit trickier because they might be less obvious. They're indirect messages, so to speak, and we might not notice certain patterns consciously, but our subconscious is great at noting things like that. And our brain goes on to use these patterns that we identified sometimes subconsciously to formulate ideas and rules around things such as which body types are attractive, which activities are desirable, which behaviors are desirable, normal, allowed fantasies that are hot frequency of sex or constitutes good sex what is never shown and therefore potentially portrayed as unimportant or deviant or wrong and with all messages we are of course free to ignore them or not reflect upon them i mean after all porn is not exactly here to satisfy our intellectual needs around exploring sexuality however if we don't keep an eye out on these things and never reflect there's a lot of conflict potential both within ourselves and with our partners. It can make us develop unrealistic or simply false expectations around sex and that we then use to judge ourselves or our partners. The use of porn. Well, straightforward, it can be a means to an end, and I assume you know what that means. Um, porn can act as a substitution. So maybe there are couples who manage to give each other absolutely everything they need from each other physically. and But that is the exception it's probably not the rule so for the rest that means that some aspects of this our, there are sex lives will remain either unfulfilled or need to be substituted in some way or the other and the question is how big of a part should these substitutions um so these substitutions such as porn be Um, how much are we willing to have that in our life porn can be used for exploration You can watch it to broaden your mind about what you or your partner might like to try. If you can't stomach porn, dipping into some erotica or sex storytelling podcasts such as Body could help you. Pay attention to your body. It will tell you in no uncertain terms whether something is intriguing or off-putting to you. In case you watch porn with your partner, expect your reactions to differ. It is extremely unlikely that you are turned on by all the same things. And please be prepared to have mature conversations about this, like we discussed above. Ridiculing or judging someone in this situation could lead to a loss of intimacy because the person feels they can't be honest about what they like. Parenting children in the age of porn. I think that the more uncomfortable you are, the less likely your children are to take any kind of sex education or advice from you. And, you know, I don't have children, so... Of course, take everything I say with a grain of soul, but I would consider thinking about this because it's weird enough talking to your parents about sex without them being, you know truly awkward and weird about it. And putting your comfort above your sexual your child's sexual literacy, you know can, can come at a high price eventually. Zero tolerance, of porn or anything that you don't like usually leads to two things your kids are clueless what to do and how to react once sex and porn pop up in their life and they will or they are very likely to just get their information from secret sources you might not like so if you signal to your child that you're open to discuss these matters they can decide whether they want to do that or not The actress Emma Thompson made a whole book for her daughter about sex and porn because she wanted to make sure that the info her daughter got was in line with her own values. You might also consider watching some of the more sex-positive shows on Netflix that I mentioned before, such as Sex Education, Sex and Love with Christiane Christiane Amanpour, or uh, a show called Bonding. If you're lucky, you might find a show that both you and your children uh, enjoy watching that communicates these ideas in entertaining and constructive ways. And for that, I like One Day at a Time, because it's not a show about sex at all. It's just a show about a family. And they have teenagers, and every once in a while, the topic pops up. And I think the people model very well how a healthy family talks about these things. So if you are like, well, I am truly not into uh, watching all these things or going down these things, that is a, a pretty safe and pretty harmless route to, to educating yourself about how to communicate with your children when it comes to s- matters of porn and sex. Sex education is usually often not sex education, weirdly enough. It's disease, dis- disease and pregnancy prevention. Here's what I suggest that true sex education would look like, creating an environment where where vulnerability is encouraged and protected. This was discussed in part about sex positivity and good environments. So those are actually pretty good guidelines to start putting into place. Um, Keeping an eye on current events, pop stars, actors, politicians, and athletes constantly do or say things that can be used as a starting point for a fruitful discussion or even just for something that you model yourself daily life in school also offers opportunity. Maybe somebody was caught sexting and instead of condemnation and punishment, which might be absolutely appropriate depending on what happened, it might be good to discuss and give voice to those who experienced something if they're willing and capable to talk. This is also important. We can't, we shouldn't victimize people who went through something horrible and forced them to kind of relive that trauma, but sometimes something happens and somebody actually wants to talk about it. And I think that is important to give them that space if that's what they want. Fact-based learning is important. It is important to keep our eyes open for opinion and judgment clouded information that could be misleading. Facts are things that can be studied in repeatable experiments. Um, Facts are things that are true, whether you believe it or not. And in the absence of credible and good information, we need to consider a few things. Can we say nothing about whatever happened? What are the consequences of saying nothing? Where can we find information that isn't judgmental or potentially harmful, especially for students who have different sexual orientations or preferences? Working through our own discomfort is also very important. Too often, the intense discomfort of parents, teachers, and scientists makes good information hard to come by. Even if it exists, there is a huge reluctance to talk about it. So they'll get the info, if not from you, then probably from a source that is way less healthy and constructive. So that's what I want to say to the parents. I talked about the Netflix show one day at a time, so if you specifically are interested in how to talk about sex, in season one, there's an episode called Sex Talk, and in season three, First Time, Um, those are specifically, I want to specifically mention those to, if you need some inspiration about how to talk to young people about sex and porn and those things. Religion. If you don't engage in certain sexual practices because of your beliefs and you are sexually fulfilled, um, don't change a thing. If you aren't sexually fulfilled, let's at least talk about and try to think about different ways to understand and read those passages. Now, of course, I am no scholar and no Bible or Torah expert, um, but from my incomplete and fragmented readings, sexuality does not seem to be as big a deal in the Bible, the Torah, and other texts I've read, um, they had so much more to say about love, prayer, how to treat other people outside of the bedroom. And I say this simply based on how often sexual rules and stories popped up. Um, Judging others for their legal sexual activity might feel like you're somehow leading a pious life, but whenever we're judging people, we're not... Truly working on bettering ourselves, judging and criticizing, and it's kind of similar to gossip. It's it's something that comes easily to most humans, but it's not usually helpful in the long term. There are some problematic passages in the Bible which indicate that things like incest were not seen as a problem. And should we be basing our decisions on a value system which differs so much from our own, right? Uh, back then, people and ch- uh, women and children did not have the same rights as today. So, forbidding something like anal sex may have been less about the practice itself and more about preventing abuse of women, girls, and young boys. Health and hygiene were not on the same level as today. So, some sexual activities that might have gotten you deadly infections can be done safely today. And information is also more freely available. Certain practices might be dangerous if you're clueless about what you're doing, but safe if you educate yourself. And I really want to invite you to just consider these ideas. Again, I'm not a biblical scholar. I'm not saying that I am right about these things. But even among biblical scholars, people vary um, quite a bit. Um, when it comes to how literal um, to take certain rules or how to interpret them, what was more, you know, a, what had more of a practical origin and one what was really truly like a universal rule across the ages. So I'll just invite you to think about it if religion is important to you and especially if you're struggling. Again, if you're not struggling with your sexuality and the expression of it, Um, I don't want to challenge your, you know, your sexual, your sexuality and how you do religion. Like if, if, if everything is okay, cool. I am really addressing people who are maybe truly unfulfilled and unhappy and they don't know who to talk to because it seems like a sin. And for those are the people who I think should really think about, well... Is it possible that some of the passages that trouble me or that that have certain rules that they were created for practical reasons such as disease prevention or human rights issues that are not, that don't come into play when two consulting adults um, interact, all right? Shame is another big topic. And the thing about shame is that it rarely achieves what it's supposedly set out to do. So people are not Deterred from engaging in sexual activity or cheating, Um, if shame would work, we would have none of that, right? The people who are kept in line often do so while sacrificing many psychological and physical needs. Uh, People with shame wounds, as Brené Brown calls them, ends up end up lashing out at others and creating a lot of conflict. And what shame does accomplish to do is isolate people and make them feel that their character is bad. It leads to stress that can sometimes spiral into mental health issues. People might get a short kick out of shaming others, but that leads to fake feelings of bonding. They're not real, as the judgmental folks will generally and gleefully turn on you, too, if you ever think of sitting out of line anything they consider to be proper. Unnecessarily complicates shame unnecessarily complicates relationships because covering up shame leads to all kinds of acts which then further um, mistrust you know if you think about it how how many people have probably been been murdered because they knew something about you know some high-profile politician you know or something like that here are some alternatives to shame question very very thoroughly if it's your place to judge in the first place If it is, keep in mind that most people respond better to empathy, compassion, and understanding than guilt-tripping. Admittedly, guilt is sometimes truly the only appropriate response, and guilt distinguishes itself from shame, though. In guilt, the focus is on the action. The action is bad, not the person. Brene Brown says that light heals shame wounds. Which means that someone who is trustworthy and understanding could be helpful to process your shame if you're carrying it around. If you don't know someone like that, um, maybe a therapist, uh, possibly a sex therapist, could help you with that. You can also Google online help if you don't have access to a sex therapist in real life. What if something is truly harmful? Um, Please understand that people differ widely in what they consider to be harmful, scary, and sexually desirable. Just because you think certain practices are harmful does not mean that they are for others. However, I urge you to respect your inner boundaries, because some things might actually be harmful to you that are pleasurable to others. When it comes to things like pedophilia or rape, um, they need to be dealt with with the help of professionals and, of course, the full force of the law. So please understand that throughout this episode, I never condoned anything that goes into those territories okay i'm just saying well some things might might sound deviant to you but might be good for other people or enjoyable to other people then let's talk finally about the cult about virginity um listen i have a romantic streak i can absolutely see the beauty in two people who have decided that they want to have sex just with each other and nobody else if if that's you dear listener and you make each other happy in bed, I am happy for you, I'm pumped. The reason why I mentioned the word cult is that it's often not all the hype around virginity is really about anything like purity or something. And how do I know this? Well, there are no purity ceremonies for sons, as far as I'm aware of. Men are also not questioned by their doctors to ensure that they are virgins before they get married. And in more conservative countries, Men might be kicked out of the family for being gay, but usually not for having had sex before marriage. And, as we can see, the load is placed exclusively on women's shoulders, so I'm not buying that it's for some romantic or religious reason. If it were, all of us could, you know, would have to contribute to make it happen. As a sexual ideal, uh, fetishizing a virgin makes no sense to me personally. I have yet to meet someone who says the first time was the best time or someone who says I'm really great at tennis so I can't wait to play with that newbie over there. If you do fetishize virgins it might be helpful to question your sexual self-confidence maybe and I don't mean this in a mean way maybe you're just truly unsure about what you can do to um, give pleasure to someone else and that's why you might have a thing for virgins because they have nothing to compare it to but if that's you please don't make other people suffer because of your insecurity it's so much more sustainable for you to work on that insecurity and also more it will probably be more pleasurable for you too if you learn how to get good at giving pleasure to other people or one other person instead of you know holding on to this idea about virginity So yeah, that was a pretty packed episode. I hope that regardless of where you are on your sexual journey, you heard a few things that are worth thinking about and possibly taking action on. And maybe if you need to kickstart a discussion around sexuality and you liked what you heard, you might consider listening to this with someone you care about. Now here are a few reviews. Uh, One is from Jessica from Australia. I have now listened to 90 episodes of your podcasts. Uh, Starting at your first one, as I think maybe my OCD may have caused that. I am learning so much, and I've definitely noticed a change in my mindset from when I first started listening to now. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and getting such amazing guests to contribute. Your podcast is life-changing, and I absolutely love tuning in when I'm out driving. Love and gratitude all the way from Australia. Well, love, lots of love and greetings to you, Jessica, in Australia and all the good folks from Down Under. Um, Jessica, I just wanna say I do not have OCD and I have also listened to all episodes of certain podcasts. So you may or may not have have OCD, I truly don't know. But I think it's fair to say that even if you don't, um, I'm very honored that you listen to everything. And a special shout out to all of you listeners who have listened to 90 or more episodes just like Jessica has, I am deeply grateful for your attention. Ken Eggs from the USA said, Helpful to learn about positive psychology. As a new student and beneficiary of this type of happiness, I enjoy the conversations and guests on the show. Thanks, Ken. It's always great to hear from students who are interested in positive psychology. And if you are a student like Ken is, and you're possibly considering to apply positive psychology, um, you can hit me up anytime. All right, you can just email me or, or, or send a tweet or something. I love talking to students who, who are interested in putting positive psychology into whatever it is that they're working on. And finally, we have Pegs from the USA. This show is wonderful. It is refreshing, insightful, and helpful. I'm amazed at the in-depth knowledge passed along in such a way that I am educated and inspired to develop my strengths and create a home that is pro-growth for my family. I'm especially happy that I can apply these insights to my classroom, why I work with special needs students and have a staff of five in my room. I believe that both the adults and students in my class will all benefit from implementing things such as growth mindset and strengths development. Thank you so much for this podcast. It was an answered prayer for me at a time when I was searching for ways to improve my life. Thank you so much, Pegs. I actually have goosebumps right now. This literally just happened. Um, I have a soft spot for teachers, and I love to hear that you are spreading the gift of positive psychology so far and wide. And again, for anybody, for you, Peg, but also other people into your position, um, I am always happy if you if you have questions about how to do that to reach out. I, I might not be able to answer all of these things. Um, But yeah, if if you think reaching out could help uh, spread positive psychology in the wonderful way that Pegs does, let me know. All right. This is it for this episode. Talk to you another time. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Positive Psychology Podcast. We're saying goodbye with Happy Yoghurt.